Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. A- as expected, my crazy Google travel schedule has caused me to reschedule some of my interviews. But I promise that I'll get back to talking with some of Japan's most amazing startup founders really soon. Today, however, I want to talk about the feedback I received from my recent discussion with Miku Hirano about how pregnant women are treated at work in Japan, and specifically about my comments in the outro of that episode. Hey, when I screw up, I have no problem admitting that I screwed up, and boy did I step in it this time. So today, I want to set the record straight on what it's like for working women at startups and at large enterprises here in Japan. Oh, yeah, and we're also going to talk about shoes. And yeah, I, I totally understand how strange it is for a white guy to stand behind a microphone and talk about the situation women face in Japan. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But first, let me explain what I got wrong. And let me set the record straight. In our conversation, Miku told the story of how supportive her clients and her prospective clients had been when she was pregnant, doing things like adjusting their schedules and coming to her office for meetings, where Japanese business protocol would require that she visit them. Both Miku and I were surprised and delighted. That so many Japanese salarymen who have a reputation for being rather sexist voluntarily went out of their way to accommodate her and to make things just a little bit easier for her when she was expecting. In the outro, I speculated that this outpouring of support might be because she was a startup CEO, and many of the traditional rules of Japanese business etiquette. Don't seem to apply to startups. And I mused that her experience might have been very different if she had worked at a more traditional Japanese company. Well, I was wrong. I was really wrong. And in fact, I have to say I'm, I'm pretty happy that I was wrong about this. So let me explain what happened. After that episode aired, I received a lot of email from female listeners working at large Japanese companies who explained that both their clients and their companies made exactly the same kind of accommodations for them when they were pregnant. And I also heard from a few senior managers and HR professionals telling me that I got it wrong. They gave me examples of how they had made a point of traveling to visit a vendor who was pregnant. Or broke up long meetings into multiple short ones to make things more manageable for pregnant employees or visitors. So I got it wrong. And that's awesome. But I, I can't just leave it there. I know, I know, I probably should. But I mean, something still doesn't fit. There is a great deal of gender discrimination in Japan. Both international organizations and Japanese NGOs consistently rank Japan very poorly in this regard. In fact, 
the World Economic Forum's Gender Gap Report ranked Japan as 110th out of 149 countries. And then there are things like Tokyo Medical Universities marking down the girls' scores on the entrance exams to ensure that, quote, enough boys would get in. So how do we reconcile this seeming contradiction? The independent research showing that discrimination exists is consistent and respected, and there's no reason to doubt it. And the personal experiences of the Disrupting Japan listeners who took the time to email me are also every bit as real, and I've got no reason to doubt them. I asked a number of my women founder and professional friends about this, and I got, well, let's just call it a range of opinions on the matter. On one extreme, I had people tell me that the macro research was just misleading and that Japan is quite supportive of women who really want to work hard to get ahead. On the other extreme, one friend of mine concluded that this support for pregnant women was actually a subtle form of gender discrimination, explaining that the behavior was just reinforcing the patriarchal idea that, above all else, a woman's job is to have babies. So, after carefully examining all the evidence and considering all of these opinions, I've come to the conclusion that I don't know. Now, I realize that's not a satisfying answer. And as a podcaster, as an author, I'm expected to boil things down into simple sound bites or at least cogent explanations. In today's world, not having a clear opinion on a subject is viewed as a sign of being uninformed or unintelligent or indecisive. The The idea being, well, Get back to us when you've finished your assignment and you have your opinion ready. But I disagree. Any five-year-old can have an opinion. But there is a kind of valor in consciously deciding that you don't know. And no, I don't mean this in the disingenuous, I'm just providing the facts and letting you decide for yourself kind of a way. But in the more complex... I'm going to walk you through the facts and my thought processes that show you why your current belief is probably wrong, even though I don't have a new belief to replace it with. And yeah, I, I get that that sounds like some kind of negative learning, but, but stay with me on this one. I'll walk you through the facts and logic regarding female founders in Japan, I'll take you right up to the point where we would normally jump to a conclusion, and then I'll hold this back. Because in all likelihood, neither you nor I are really ready to make that jump just yet. <laughs> anyway, all of this will make a lot more sense in a few minutes when we start talking about shoes. Oh, and before we go any further, let's just address the elephant in the room here. I'm a white American male talking about the life experiences of Japanese female founders. We can all agree that that's at least a little bit weird, right? The thing is, though, 
the situation for women founders and managers in Japan is really interesting, and it's an important topic. And I get asked about it a lot. And not only when I'm talking about Japanese startups overseas, but even when I'm speaking to Japanese audiences here in Japan. So I feel like it would be even weirder for me not to talk about it. Especially when there are so many far less informed people spouting all manner of nonsense on the topic. But it's tricky. The farther something is from our own life experiences, the harder it is to really understand, and the more likely we are to get it wrong. But I try, and I rely on my female friends, fans, and founders to let me know when I screw something up. So I'll get closer to the truth next time. But the real truth, the one that journalists just refuse to accept, is that there's no single experience of being a woman founder in Japan, or of being a male founder in Japan. Even on basic issues like the level of discrimination women face, or the value of the programs that support female founders, the women founders who've come on the show have had very different opinions about most of it. And so, trying to make simple statements about the experience of hundreds of different people is going to be error-prone. What is interesting, though, is that after interviewing more than 150 Japanese startup founders, I think that the female founders have a much greater diversity of experience than male founders do. I mean, that men's stories are much more like each other's than the women's stories are like each other's. And I think there's a good reason for this. If you're a salaryman in Japan, there are clear rules for social interaction. You and everyone else knows exactly how you're expected to behave in any common social situation. Now, over the past 10 years or so in Japan, a kind of standard, stereotypical image of a startup founder has developed here. He's young, dresses casually, he's outgoing and confident, and constantly busy. It's a ready-made social persona that any male founder can step into, and people will understand how to treat him. It's not required, of course. I mean, some founders are introverts, and a few even prefer to wear ties. But the persona is there, fully formed. If you choose to step into it, you'll understand how to act, and people will understand how to treat you. But it's different for women founders. There's no standard persona yet. There's no baseline. There's no clear idea of who exactly they're supposed to be. So every female founder is both free to, and in a sense required to, create that persona for herself. And as a result we see much greater variation in the way that female founders interact with customers and manage staff and, and the way they present themselves to the world. So I'll continue bringing their individual stories as they tell them, and I'll make general observations when I think I can. Okay, Tim. Can we talk about shoes now? Yes. 
Yes, dear listener, now we can talk about shoes. But it's important to remember that whenever you're talking about shoes, you're never really talking about shoes. Last January, Yumi Ishikawa started the Kutu movement, protesting the fact that many corporate and government dress codes require women to wear high heels. Now, there is a very important social issue here, and as we'll see in a moment, it's not really about the shoes. But in this age of social media, almost all of the Kutu discussions broke down into millions of people sharing their experiences and asserting their opinions in 280 characters or less. Even most mainstream media coverage was the same kind of vacuous, wow, look at all these opinions, please share yours on our social media page. Well, we're going to do something a bit different. My well-considered and firmly held position on whether Japanese women should be required to wear high heels at work is, I don't know. I, I really don't know. But if we're being honest, most people, probably including both you and Ishikawa-san herself, don't know either. Now, that's a bold claim of ignorance, so, so let me explain it. I have no personal experience with high heels. They they certainly look uncomfortable. But as I said before, the farther I get away from personal experience, the more likely I am to get something wrong. So I'm going to talk about something very similar to kutsu that I do have a lot of direct experience in. Wearing neckties in Japan. Now, I grant you that shoes are different from neckties. And men have a very different relationship with neckties than women do with shoes. Across cultures and generations, shoes have always been something more than a fashion statement. They've always been something transformative. Think of Cinderella or Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, for example. When you're talking about shoes, you're never really talking about shoes. But neckties... That's something I understand. Neckties are uncomfortable and annoying, and, and most men don't particularly enjoy wearing them. Certainly no one wears them around the house. And if you surveyed young male Japanese employees and asked them if they should have to wear a necktie, they would undoubtedly vote that they should be free to wear whatever they like at work. But they would be wrong. Those young men don't yet have the experience to understand enough about customer expectations and business protocols to really know whether a necktie is required or not. You know, it's interesting, but Japanese business dress codes have become much more casual over the last 30 years I've been in Japan. You see a lot fewer neckties than you used to. But those dress code changes were not the result of young employees complaining about having to wear ties. They were the result of senior managers who could balance their personal discomfort wearing a tie against their understanding of industry norms and customer expectations and come to the conclusion that, yeah, in some cases, neckties are optional. 
So the obvious solution to the Coutou controversy is to have the matter resolved by senior women executives who can balance their personal discomfort wearing high heels against their understanding of industry norms and customer expectations and come to a case-by-case conclusion on when high heels are appropriate. Ah, but here we've stumbled onto the real problem. There are not enough women executives in Japan to weigh in on this matter. In fact, many Japanese companies have no women executives at all. And so, rather than have this matter worked out by people qualified to have informed opinions, the Kutu movement has moved forward largely as a debate between young women who lack the experience to understand the business protocols and middle-aged men who, presumably, have never had to spend a day in high heels and have no conception of their physical demands. I, I think that the anger and emotion around the Kutu movement is not really about shoes. The real problem is that there are so few women executives in Japan that what should be a relatively simple HR discussion has blown up into a national debate with millions of people talking past each other. I mean, I get that women don't want to be required to wear high heels. Most young men resent having to wear neckties as well. But is it a bad idea? Is it discrimination? I don't know. And at this point, I really can't know. As a guy who's been making business presentations in Japan for 25 years, I feel pretty confident weighing in on when you should really wear a tie, when it's optional, and when that level of formality is overkill and it could actually work against you. And you know something? It's pretty complicated. There, there's a lot more nuance in it than you might imagine. I'm sure that the social conventions and business impacts of wearing high heels is every bit as subtle and complex as those around wearing a necktie. But as a guy, I sure as hell don't have a clue as to what those are. And honestly, most young women don't either. So when Ishikawa-san boldly states that, quote, women do not need permission to wear what they want... I must respectfully disagree. Fashion is a language. Whether you want them to or not, the clothes you wear make a strong statement about you and about the company you represent when you're wearing them. I'm all for casual work environments, but anyone claiming that employees should have the right to wear whatever they want has, has probably never had to manage sales staff. What these women do have the right to, however, is to be fairly represented in these decisions. Decisions about women's dress codes in Japan need to be made by women who can understand the trade-offs that are being considered. But until we get a lot more women in leadership roles, that's going to be hard. Until we solve the real problem of lack of women executives in Japan we will continue to see what should be simple issues like women's dress codes blow up into multi-year national news topics. Topics that act as catharsis, 
and as a proxy for the far more serious issues facing women in Japan. Because when you're talking about shoes, you're never really talking about shoes. If you want to talk more about shoes or women's issues in Japan, I'd love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 158 and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee you that I'll respond. And hey, if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. That's one of the best ways you can support the show and to help us get the word out and help other people find Disrupting Japan. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.